Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. In our story series, we've gone through a lot of individuals and characters, some of which, I'd actually, some of whom, actually, I'd never done a lesson on, but some of you wrote in and said, we'd like to know more about, and that's always good. We like to react to those as well, respond to them. But this story is one of the more challenging stories for me personally, and for a lot of folk out there. It tends to be avoided, which I don't think it should be, because I think there's something here which speaks to a lot of you out there and a lot of us that are sitting here. I'll explain in a bit. I'm told that by people who know art, that Japanese and Chinese art, especially Japanese art with a lot of white spaces on uh, their, their palette and you know, the, the whole way they put it together, that it is what's not on there that really defines what is. And so that's why it's so simple, is that the empty spaces are as important as the drawing or the painting. And I believe that. And when I work in science or whenever I work with data or when I work with scripture, I notice as much about what's not there as I do what is there. There can be literal holes in the text if you're doing manuscripts, and they call that a lacuna. And you have to then figure out what went there, what word went there. And generally speaking, almost in all cases, there are other manuscripts that have that word, and you can put it together. But what happens when you read a story that's full of holes that nobody ever talks about, but I think the holes are important? The Bible does that. It's endlessly fascinating. It's amazing what is not in our Bible. I, I always say that if I'd written the Bible, it would have been shorter and longer, and that's according to what day you ask me. But I would have had a book of worship. Here's the acceptable worship. Here's the liturgy. Do it this way every time, and I'm good. That would have been nice. God knows how to write those books because he did in the Old Testament. 611 laws, 613 by uh, some people's count, he knew how to regulate a worship. But in the New Testament, he didn't even describe a worship, much less proscribe one given way. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, Christians could be united over that. How about a, a book of here are the rules about what you can wear and how much flesh you may show under different conditions, perhaps loosening up a bit around the coast where the beaches are nice. I don't know. But what we would like to have had that sort of guardrails, but they're not there. And then what is there is fascinating and terrifying. There's you know, obvious stories, of course, like the rape of Tamar or Rabshaketh talking about people having to drink their own urine. Um, yeah, we're, we're PG today. Uh, but I'm also talking about other stuff that's in there that you wouldn't expect, like complaints about God about failures of our heroes, sins of the heroes, the brokenness in here. In fact, look at the book of Psalms. 
It was Jesus' songbook growing up and a huge source of doctrine for the average Jewish people throughout all time. And in fact, even to this day, is mined by Christians and by Jews for its doctrine, its poetry, its expressions, and its songs. And yet, of the 150 psalms which we retained in our Bible, 61 are entirely psalms of lament. More than a third are lament. And I'm not sure we're really good at lament. I think we're afraid of lament. When people lament, what do we do? We immediately jump in there to try to tear them up and tell them, no, God's got this. Right? Whenever they say, you know, I've got cancer and it doesn't look good. And we're going, we are praying for a miracle. And it's going to go. Instead of going, oh, no, and crying with them, like the psalmist would, people want to cheer them up. And, you know, God's got this. Well, we already know that. It's, it's, it's kind of like uh, you have a dear one die and Christians will line up to tell you they're in a better place. We, we knew that. That was part of the deal. What we'd like to talk about is that vast, painful hole in our life. Somebody to sit in the ashes with us like Job's friends did before they went sideways by trying to give advice. And by the way, I said 61 were entirely laments. There are another six that are mainly laments. And some of them don't resolve. By that I mean at the end of the psalm, they don't say, still I trust you, God, like that hymn just did. Two of them just say, basically, I, I'm hurting and, and you're not helping. Now, why would you put that in the Bible? I mean, come on. You're, this, is, this is your sales brochure, is it not? You're trying to sell God in a, in a Christian lifestyle, a life of faith. Why would you put those in? Look at the story of Jeremiah, if you dare. How do we have Christians that teach a health and wealth gospel when you have a Bible that has Jeremiah in it? Or the book called Lamentations, Complaints Out of Fear and Pain. That's what element is. Isaiah has hope built into it, but it also has long periods of prophecies that God will not answer your prayers during all of this time. Unheard cries are there. Devastation is there. How about even in the New Testament? Paul, at some time, uh, was able to heal people by just touching pieces of cloth, and then that cloth was taken to them. But later in his life, he tells Timothy to use a little wine for his stomach ailments. He doesn't offer a healing. He talks about Epaphroditus coming to visit with him, staying a long time, and nearly dying. He wasn't able to heal then. What happened to the mass healings? And speaking of Paul, we watch him dying alone in Scripture. And one of the last things he says is that all of those in Asia have turned against me. Would you put that in? I would not have uh, at all. Or the book of Hebrews. One of my favorites. It's what we're doing shortly uh, on our midweek Bible classes. It is uh, absolutely, if I had a desert island book, it would be Hebrews. Because it, it elevates Christ and it's all about Christ and how Christ speaks for us. And you know Hebrews 11. Everybody knows Hebrews 11. Yeah, the first part. Everybody knows the first part. The second half is a list of people unnamed and the horrible ways in which they died. 
And I'm not going to go through all of that because I've already nudged the PG-13 line. I don't want to actually go there. And in Hebrews 11, their deaths are looked upon as a good thing. They are, they are elevated because they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. It's rather like using Fox's Book of Martyrs as a recruiting tool. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you don't have to. It is not required. But you can find it because it's been out of copyright since, I don't know, Noah was in dry dock. So you can go on to Google and you can find it. Read a couple chapters, you'll get the whole idea. And yet, why would you put that there? there then there are the stories that are in there, but they require a good tweaking, a good editor. Kirsten, a good, uh, somebody to really look at him and say, all right, this needs, we need to help this story. Because if you don't, it's not going to let you keep your faith at an elementary level where every prayer is answered and everything's a part of God's plan and we are happy, happy, happy all the time. Stories like the one we're going to talk about today. Let's start with Abraham. It's not going to be Abraham's story, but Abraham's in the story. And Abraham was an absolute hero, unless you look closely. He sold out his wife twice to save his own skin. He failed to care for either son in any demonstrable way. He sent one of his sons and his secondary wife, don't even, into the desert to fend for themselves twice. He wasn't the giant of faith that we tried to make him. Though, I will in the same breath say, he probably did a lot better than any of us would have done in those circumstances because he didn't have a background of, of temple or church or tabernacle or any of that. This is before that. Walking in the dark. He often failed to follow through on his faith. He laughed. Actually, the Bible says he scoffed when he was told that they were still going to have a son. Sarah laughed. He scoffed. And they named the boy, he laughs, Isaac, Isaac. I want to talk about Isaac. Because there's something missing in the story of Isaac. Very different. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the story of Moses, the story of Joshua. Isaac is always put up there on the pantheon of these great ones. But there's something missing in Isaac's story that is in all of the other stories. And that is Isaac never drew close to God. Isaac, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. What is it like to be raised by a legend of the faith? What is it like? When you look at the life of Isaac, you notice something. He believed in God. There were times that he prayed. But he sat on the other end of the pew from God. He kept God out there. God to Isaac was powerful, but not safe. His father engaged with God regularly in dramatic ways. His son, although quite a mess, um, had his, and had his own issues with God, didn't hesitate to roll up his issues, his sleeves rather, and wrestle with God. But Isaac sat on the other end. It wasn't safe to draw close to God. You draw close to God. It can hurt. And I think it might have had something to do with Mount Moriah. We know the story. God tells Abraham after he's waited all these years to have a son. And he has a son but decides to reject that son. And now this son 
that Abraham is to go to this distant mountain and there sacrifice his son, the son of promise. He'd waited nearly a century to get. Would you put that in the Bible? Now, I have some theologian friends who go, why, yes, it's a deep mind of it. I'm going, hush. This is because you got to go somewhere and sit for six years and think about this and read these stories and find a way to put a spin on them that looks good. But it's really hard to put a spin on this, which is good. It, again, it's in there for a reason. But would you put it there? Our Jewish friends throughout the centuries, many of them, uh, there are a couple of schools of thought, but the, one of the large schools of thought is that this wasn't God's idea at all, but this was Satan that had done this. I don't think you can get God off the hook by doing that. They just, they just can't find a way to make it work with God, and so they say, well, Satan was the real one behind it. The standard rabbinical teaching is that Isaac was not a boy at the time, and they use the words, and, and in other languages, there are nuances, uh, there are dative, and there are all of these other tenses, all of these other voicings that you can use words for different ages. And they come up with Isaac being 37 years old. Having a 37-year-old who still lives in your tent with mom and dad might make killing him more palatable, but I'm, I'm not really sure that this, is, that this is, solves our problem. Richard Dawkins and the atheist he leads run to this story. I've read it so many times in her writings. To paint God as a savage, primitive, Middle Eastern deity, no better than any of the gods of the Philistines or the Moabites. Most Christian scholars say Isaac was in his late teens at the time. That hard-to-explain Mount Moriah trip took place. But regardless, this story bothers us, and hear me very plainly, it should bother us. I don't think God wanted this story to be in there so we can sit around and nod and go, got it? Okay, good. God tells us to kill our kids. That's what we do. In fact, we have people who are mentally ill who have believed that's what God wanted and they've drowned their kids and they've killed their kids and we put them in institutions to save us from them and as a way to show society this is not acceptable. I think all of us would approve of that particular solution. But I believe it didn't bother us as much as it bothered Isaac. God, however, this is pretty cool to me, never complained about Isaac's being a little distant at all. He seemed to have accepted it, never held it against him, continued to bless him. Isaac was the only patriarch who never left Canaan. The others, God would say, go here, go do this, good, and they'd go. He never told Isaac to go anywhere. Twice Isaac, by the way, tried to leave, and both times God said, no. In other words, Isaac, I, I, I know who you are. You don't have to do anything else. You're good. He didn't demand the great things from Isaac that he demanded from Abraham and Joseph, and uh, I'm sorry, Jacob. And well, we could also go to Joshua, and we could go to, he, he never demanded anything from Isaac. It isn't easy to be the child of a legend. It isn't easy to be a sermon illustration and be thrown into the mission of your parents when it endangers your childhood or your life. There are several books out there right now, and I've watched them be produced all my life, that are second generation why I left 
books. You know, the father, generally the father, there are some where the mama was the minister or the missionary, but most of them, uh, because they're coming from a Protestant background that has that particular stream in it, the men did the preaching. And the sons or the daughters write books on why we left, why we're not part of it. I've read several of them. It has become almost a growth industry in recent times for people to leave Christian faith entirely and then to write about the why. The preacher kid phenomenon is well known. They can be more difficult, but people don't ask about the why. The why may be because they have a parent that's a legend that's busy saving the world and not raising the kids, not a part of their life. Not all preacher kids are going to be difficult and distant from God, but enough of them are to make us pause if we have any view of the sociology of our day. We should notice these things. In fact, I talked about this only once before in my life, and that was at Tulsa Workshop back in the day. I can remember Cammie and I drove there from where we were living in Colorado Springs, and whenever we finally got to Tulsa and it was my time to get up, as I got out of the truck, I leaned against the truck and she just looked at me and she goes, Patrick, and I said, I don't know if I can do this, uh, but that's what they've asked me to come do. You see, I am Isaac. And I bet some of you are too. Maybe we should talk about it. My father heard the call right as the Korean War was winding down. The story, and there were varying stories, but the story most often told was while in a flight, he was an aviation guy, uh, not a a pilot, a a tech, uh, that the Marine Corps major that was um, flying the plane, the engine stopped. He was having trouble getting them back going, and my dad said, he said out loud, oh my God, and then realized he'd never gotten around to finding a God and thought that would be a good thing to do before impact. But he didn't know how to do that. And he heard the call from God and he went from zero faith to full blown all in by the entire system in nothing flat. And I do owe my father. He pulled my family out of generations of poverty and petty crime. Uh, He brought faith to a family that had none. And before his passing in March 2019, I told him several times that if I had been born first, he would have been born in poverty because I know what it took for him to pull up himself out of poverty and I'm not sure I have that in me. So, you know, it's, people aren't cartoons. He, there aren't, they aren't all bad or good. He had the drive. He had the work ethic. He, he took the blows. He went to school being laughed at because he had rubber jar rings holding his shoes together. He, he did all of that. So kudos a lot. And then dad became a minister and quickly switched sides. When he was fired by the first group he became a minister for, for being too mean, they said, the only people we think you can be happy with are the anti-fiddle people. And he'd never heard of them, but he found them when he found the, the church of Christ. And he became quickly a rising star. Many of you may not know this, but in the 50s and 60s in America, the churches of Christ were in the newspapers and such because they were just exploding in in growth. And there there were even books, Preachers of Today. I don't know if any of you ever saw those. I've still got the Preachers of Today where they would have pictures and bios of the faithful preachers 
And my dad's picture was in every one. Well, he was, a, he was a star. I memorized the Jewel Miller film strips. I'm not going to go and look it up. I memorized everything plus the ding. Because uh, you, they would take a little record player, look that up. Uh, and then later a cassette player looked that up. Uh, and, and then it would have a ding in it when you're supposed to change the slide. Well, Dad would just have me there. And he, I, knew the, the, I knew the stuff. We had no time for Little League. We had no time for Boy Scouts. No time for sleepovers. No time for play. And I did not realize I didn't have time for play until I grew up older and saw other people join teams and played. But that wasn't for us because we had a job to do. We had to save the world. We went to, um, went to Bible classes. We went to meetings. Uh, if you don't remember the meetings, <laughs> some of them lasted a week. Oh, boy. And a few lasted two weeks. And what happened was all the members of the churches that already agreed with you would come and attend your meeting. That's support. is what the word. We'll support your meeting. And then the preacher would preach about why we were right and ask people to come forward and be baptized. But the most, oh, everybody in the room was from other churches that are, it was required though, because if you didn't go, you were shamed. You were shamed. And there was fear of withdrawal there. Perform? Yeah, you had to perform. I was never asked. I was told when I was going to speak, do a song, teach a class, I was told what to say, when to say it, and put, and I did not know this was unusual until I got earlier, or rather later in my life. My father drew so near to the fire of God that it burned his kids. And I've lost two sisters. Um, different ways that they ended their life, but lost two. I've lost friends, nearly lost myself in all of this, and didn't know. Didn't understand what was going on. Even to the point of um, one of the last times I was in my, where my father was before he became ill was when my son graduated from, um, or I don't even want to say graduated, survived Marine Corps boot camp. So we go down to Paris Island. First time we've seen him. If you don't know this, in the Marines, you don't get to uh, communicate with home. You know, they'll get letters sometimes and they can write letters sometimes, but there's no email, no phone call. Uh, what is it, a 10-second phone call or something when they arrive at Paris Island and there's a card there on the thing that this is what you say. This is recruit so-and-so, I have arrived safely, and you hang up. You don't say, and that's it for 12 weeks. They don't even hear their name. They are recruit. They can't say, I, me, my, or, because in the Marines, they got to break you down to make you a Marine. And so they, they do that. So here we finally get to see him. This is a big emotional thing. We actually get to have a picnic with him. So we buy food, and my, mainly my wife's parents bought food. So we get to have a picnic with him. We go on base, we see him um, you know, march out, and we uh, go to get the food, and my dad's giving it away. He said, no, these recruits over here, they, they needed it more, they were. And I said, Dad, this, is, this was our chance to visit with our son. And again, I got shamed. You don't care about poor people. You don't care about the gospel. I, it's just on and on. Now, this sounds like a therapy session, but here's the thing. I, I believed in God, and so did many of you, but you got hurt. 
It's one of the reasons why you're here. Church has burned you. In fact, I could build the biggest church in any town in, Western, in the Western world by just gathering the people that churches have hurt. And that's a shame. That's just a shame. We can stop this. We have to stop this. I believed in God, but to me, he was not the voice from the fire or the voice that walked with us in the garden. He wasn't the God of grace. In fact, I remember the sermon on grace, the sermon on grace I heard, and that was grace is God forgiving your sins if you deserve it and have worked as hard as you could. And I didn't realize till later, that's not grace. That's adequate reward for effort. I feel for my parents. I really do. Because I knew I didn't fit in the lines, but I didn't know what to do. God gave them a scientist as a kid. And that can't have been easy for them at all. But maybe my experience was for your benefit. Many, around, many of you find yourself around prayer champions. I want to go on record here. I believe in prayer. I love prayer. We need prayer champions. That said, have you ever looked around and thought, well, they love to pray, and God seems like he hangs on every word that they say, and he brings answers to their prayer, blessings to their doorstep. He straightens their children's teeth. But it's not working for me. I don't know how many times I've heard the story. It's a variation. You've all heard it where we were down to our last dollar, this broke, we needed 500, 2,000, 6,000, whatever it was, or everything was going to, and then a doorbell rang, and a complete stranger just said, here's the check for the complete amount. And I'm going, those stories are nice, but can we talk to the people back here that had to file bankruptcy? Can we talk to the people here whose kid didn't get well? Can we talk about that? Can we lament we weren't allowed to lament. This is a lament sermon. And if it's making you uncomfortable, it's because you were never told that lament is part of the journey. It's part of the process. It is not an aberration. As humans, we're supposed to look at the world and go, this doesn't look right. And we're supposed to wrestle with God and be disappointed. I'll never forget the Jewish rabbi that I was just venting on. This is decades ago. And he looked at me and he goes, Patrick, you'll never be okay until you can forgive God for hurting you. And I went, we don't forgive God. That, he does the other. And he goes, no, you'll, you'll never walk with him until you forgive him. I had never thought of that. Maybe, maybe Isaac and Rebecca is your story. I don't know. He, Isaac married Rebecca when he was 40. The scripture tells us they weren't, they weren't able to have children for years. For years and years and years. Then, Scripture says, Isaac prayed and Rebekah had twins. It was, why did it take him so long to pray? He didn't pray for those many, many years. But when he prayed, God didn't go, oh, now you're going to talk to me? Now you want something enough? To... No, God immediately gave him two sons, which in the Old Testament time is like winning the lottery twice. It is massive. I think Mount Moriah kept him back from praying. But, and it kept, by the way, it kept Isaac's first instinct from ever to go to God. But when he goes to God, God answers a prayer super quick. Takes care of him. It's amazing. But there's no indication that that made Isaac move closer to God. There was still that hurt. God certainly didn't play much of a life in the role of his sons for a while. 
and maybe ever in Esau's life. And that's a common problem in the Old Testament. You know, it's hard to say, let's go to the patriarchs to learn how to raise our kids. It's just, that would be a bad idea. I wouldn't have put any of this story in the Bible, but God did. And I want you to think about what that means for a while. And I want you to ask yourself, are you Isaac? You are. If at some time in your life, drawing close to God burned you, close to the fire burned you, and you, you learned a little bit of fear. You are, if your parents' faith became a burden, and such a burden to you that you struggled to keep your faith at all, or at least to find a faith that was meaning and to make it alive. You are, if you came under the influence of someone whose faith demanded things of you that you just couldn't bear. I, one of my relatives lectured his wife in front of the whole family about her lack of faith because she didn't want to go live in a third world country. She liked her home and she liked her furniture and it wasn't rich, it was super simple. But she wasn't, didn't have enough faith if she wasn't willing to give up everything right now and go and... Is that kind of burden ever been put on you? Shame, fear, threat of isolation, withdrawal? You're Isaac if you ever... Your emotions aren't like other people. And whenever the communion is there, which is a very touching, wonderful moment, you look around and you see the songs and you see the tears and chills and wonder, what's wrong with me? I'm not being overwhelmed. I, I intellectually accept the story. But you're Isaac. If you're so afraid of doing something wrong, you do little else. And yet, that and yet is so important. God blessed Isaac. I mean, if you're looking at me now thinking, he, you know, sitting here complaining. No, I'm sitting here telling you. What I will also tell you is, I don't know of anybody who's been more blessed than me. I just, I just don't. And I, I look at the people, the girls I tried to date. Thank God that didn't work out. And I got Miss Cammie, who saved me. She says I saved her, but she's just being nice. Um, I think we rescued each other enough to where we bonded over a lot of this. But I look at my grandkids. We both look at, us, at each other. And seriously, we say this often. Where did our kids learn how to raise kids? This is brilliant. They are so much better at this than us. We're not the grandparents who go, well, in my day, we didn't. No, we're looking around going, cool, what book did you find? This is, this is amazing. We're blessed to have our safe harbor. We're blessed. We, are, we were blessed when we were fired. We were blessed when we had to move. By the way, nine years ago today was the day that I drove into Tennessee. I'd spoken that morning in Dallas to, I don't know, a, a, a thousand something teens uh, at Winterfest and then got into my truck. I love my truck. I wore my truck out and it died and I'm still sad. But I drove my truck all the way through and that night arrived in Nashville and that was nine years ago today. There were, it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out, but it turned out a lot better than I could have ever hoped. We look at our life and go, wow. But I still remember being Isaac. But God blessed Isaac. Paul would use Isaac, by the way, as a symbol of Christian liberty 
in contrast to Ishmael, who symbolized slavery. I think he was just running metaphors there. I don't, I'm not really sure that that's the way we should look at Isaac or Ishmael. But the on, by the way, that's the only real kudo Isaac gets in the New Testament. That's it. Hebrews and James only use him. Think of how painful this would be if Isaac was in the room. Hebrews and James only mention Isaac to bring up how great his dad was. He is passed over in the story. But God didn't pass him over. God didn't leave him out. God gave him Rebecca. He gave him sons. And some of you right now may be looking at this going, yeah, but you got Cammie. You know, I'm on my third marriage. It's breaking up. My kids didn't. I get that. But what I want to tell you is that that's not a sign that God doesn't love you. It's a sign you're on a broken planet and you're a broken person and things are going to hurt. But God doesn't show us who he likes best by giving them an easy life and a blessing, a house full of stuff. His own son, who he loved so much, said he didn't even have a, a stone to use as a pillow. He had nothing. And he died in the most humiliating, painful way men have ever figured out how to kill. Although the English really worked with the hang, draw, and quarter, you got to give it to them. They did their best to top it. And did God love Jesus? Yes. Hmm. Maybe lament is not a sin. In fact, maybe it's just part of the process. I think Isaac learned the power of blessing from the gifts of God, although he never said so. Instead, as faulty as he was and as distant as he was, as burned as he was, he called his sons to them to give them a blessing. We always focus, even there, we focus on Jacob and Rebecca, don't we? The fraud that was committed. Instead of the fact that a man who had kept his distance from God because of fear still approached blessing knowing it would happen. He knew God was good. I think of C.S. Lewis. I don't, I, I've never gotten into the Narnia stories. I love his nonfiction mind. And please don't hate me, but the Narnia stories are just so English. And the Scottish people are reading about these upper class English kids. Anyway, there's this lion character that's a, that is the metaphor, the symbol for Christ. One of them asks, is he safe? And the answer comes back, he is good but he is not safe. That's true about God. Isaac had faith in the ultimate goodness of God. While I don't believe God is safe, I do believe that I am safe with God because he will write the end of my story and he loves me and he has blessed me and he loves you and he has blessed you. I, most of my blessings I see in the rearview mirror I get to see Cammy face to face. I get to see you guys. Some of you only, some of the blessings I only see online, but I know you're there. Even when his life had not been full of joy, he found a way to give blessing to his sons. I like that about Isaac. I really do. His sons would have a hard road, but one day they would meet, and where you would think there was going to be conflict, blood, and pain, both sides offered grace and acceptance. And I wonder, where did they get that? And I can only think of Isaac. You see, even Isaacs have something to offer this world. 
you've heard God will ne never demand more from you than you can give. And that's true. It's in the scripture. I believe it. But here's the thing. There are times I do in prayer tell God, I think you have a higher opinion of me than is warranted. Because you've given me something. I don't believe I'm going to handle this one. And I'm 66. And he keeps showing me I'm wrong. But I'm a very slow learner. Maybe some of you are as well. God understands all the why. Psalm 139, he knows a word that's on your lips before it's even there. And the voicing of Hebrew there indicates he knows why it's there, not just that it's there. Real quick, I know I'm going long today. But um, I dated a girl once. You, once might be the word here. And she was very, very nice. I think we liked each other quite a bit. And she said something funny. And I replied in a way that my dad would. He would, whenever he acknowledged we'd done something funny, he'd call us a little rat. And I called her a little rat, and I thought, she's going to kill me. <laughs> the word to me was meant to be an endearment, but being called a <clears throat> diminutive sewer-dwelling rodent, I got that phrase from somewhere, was not an endearment to her. And I think we were both trying to get out of the car, me to escape and her to find a weapon. The thing is, Psalm 139 says, God knows exactly why I said it. He understands it, but he also understands why she heard it that way. And grace was to both of us, because he knows what it's like. So, you're esteemed by God. You may never have the reputation or renown of the others around you, but you will be esteemed by God who has time for you, who has space for you, who has a place for you in his house. And who will never shame you for not being like the others. You are the widow with two mites. We use that story to talk about money. I'm not sure why we do. Some of us are two mite people. All we've got is not much. But if you give it to God, wow. We all know what he can do with fish and bread. You ought to see what he can do when you give him just a little trust. If you're Isaac, trust God. It wasn't his idea to burn you. He was waiting for you, and he never tires, never tires of waiting for you. God may not be safe, but he is not one-dimensional. If you read the book of Hosea, that's your story, my story. But we're Gomer in the story. And Hosea is very reluctant. But notice the power behind Hosea that says, go woo her. Give her a home. Love her, no matter what she has done. Go woo her. Don't force her. And that's the way God does us as well. He'll work with you. He'll woo you. Scoot a little closer. See what he can do with the faith that remains. Don't lament the faith you've lost. See what he can do with the faith that remains. He doesn't need you to be a hero or a giant. He can use, I'm going King James. He can use the jawbone of an ass to wipe out an army and he can find a use for Balaam's ass to preach a gospel <laughs> and by the way I still think he's using the jawbone of asses <laughs> people who are Isaac you are welcome at our safe harbor but you're also welcome with God while I will never be able to catch up with my peers that played games and the like my grandkids are working hard on it. They're trying. 
I'm like, I'm like an inattentive collie. You know, they throw the Frisbee and it, it falls off. And I'm like, what? Why? Why are we doing this? Uh, you threw it to me. What do you want for me to throw it? You had it. I, you know, I, I, I struggle with some of these. I'm very, very much aware that God does not struggle. And God is okay. And God has accepted even the Patricks of this world who have nothing but two mites to offer. And some of you are in the same position. And some of you may have a little more, a little less. Doesn't matter. Bring it. Trust him. He, if you cannot run and fling yourself in his arms, he gets it. So do what you can with what you've got. He'll handle the rest. It's called grace. And that's the good news. Even for Isaac. Isaac.